Live from New York, I'm Julia Chasley. This is First Move. Welcome to the show. And I'm going to get you straight with a look at what we're seeing on Wall Street this morning because we are expecting a softer open, as you can see, down some three-tenths of 1% across the board. The Nasdaq and the S&P 500 slipping further from record highs hit on Tuesday. That despite a pretty juicy day for Apple investors, the tech giant passing the milestone of a $2 trillion market cap yesterday. And, wow, look at that chart. And there's IPO news too. Airbnb pushing ahead with their plans to go public. That despite the COVID-related challenges, of course, to its gig economy or sharing economy model. And the crisis, of course, continues to weigh on America's jobs market too. A further 1.1 million Americans filing fresh claims for jobless benefits just in the last week. A worse than expected number claims back above that 1 million level again after falling below that simply the week before. Not only that, of course, another an almost 15 million people continuing to collect benefits. Just another reminder of the stark disconnect between Wall Street and Main Street. Record highs, of course, for stocks versus the real economic pain for ordinary Americans. Fed minutes out yesterday showing policymakers increasingly worried about the outlook, but of course unable to decide when and how to launch new support. They've made it clear, of course, that Congress needs to do its part. Sadly, D.C. remains in a stimulus stalemate. And it's now been three weeks since millions of unemployed Americans lost their 600s a week enhanced benefit. We'll get to all of that in a moment. But first, I want to bring you some breaking news this morning too. Coming from Russia, opposition leader Alexei Navalny, a prominent critic of the Kremlin, is in hospital in a serious condition. His spokeswoman says Navalny was poisoned The news coming just hours before Russia is set to announce further details regarding their coronavirus vaccine. Matthew Chance is in Moscow covering both of these stories for us. Matthew, let's start with uh, Alexis Navalny. What do we know about the status of his health and what on earth happened here? Yeah, well, Julia, I mean, he's currently unconscious in an intensive care ward in the Siberian city of Omsk. Uh, where his plane was forced to make an emergency landing after he was taken ill on board en route uh, back to Moscow from the uh, Russian Far East. There's absolutely horrific video, which you may have seen and we may be able to broadcast now, uh, taken by a fellow passenger of medics coming onto the plane and evacuating him to an ambulance. But you can hear his screams uh, of agony uh, there. Uh, He was obviously in a lot of distress, a lot of pain. He was taken into uh, the emergency hospital uh, in, Mon- uh, in Omsk. He, as you mentioned, his supporters, his lawyers, say this is a clear-cut case of poisoning um, and they want a police investigation into the possibility that that's what took place. The doctors, though, uh, at the hospital in, in, in Omsk, where he's being sort of treated and where he's in intensive care and where he's on a, a ventilator, aren't ready yet to make that diagnosis. Take a listen to what the uh, deputy of the hospital had to say. I can report that the patient is in our hospital. He's in a serious condition on ventilatory support, but he is stable. Currently, there are multiple diagnoses which we are trying to eliminate or confirm, or are still considering. Treatment and diagnostic procedures are underway. Laboratory research, consultations with the doctors of the related areas of professional interest and case conference, and so on. 
Naturally, poisoning is considered as one of the possible reasons for the deterioration in the condition. But besides that, there could be a number of acute states that lead to the same clinical signs. We are working on everything to eliminate, confirm. Unfortunately, I cannot tell you more. All right, well, Julia, there's been uh, some comment in the past few minutes from the Kremlin. Uh, they've acknowledged that Alexei Navalny is in a serious condition. And like to any citizen of our country, their spokesman said, uh, we wish him a uh, speedy recovery. The fact is, though, that Kremlin critics like Alexei Navalny, people who are outspoken in their criticism of this country's leadership and authorities, um, have been silenced in the past with violence, sometimes using uh, poison as well. And so obviously there's a great deal of concern, a great deal of speculation at the moment. This could be the latest incident in a long line of violent uh, attempts to silence uh, Kremlin critics, Julie. Yes, we don't know yet, but it's hard not to uh, make the supposition given past history, uh, Matthew. Thank you for that update uh, there. Matthew Chance from Moscow, and we'll be back with him shortly. As I've mentioned, another big story in Russia today, of course, the coronavirus vaccine. We're expecting news on its development in less than half an hour. Later in the show, we'll also be speaking to the CEO of the Russian Direct Investment Fund, which has funded the vaccine. So we'll be with Matthew once again in the show uh, to get that latest on there. But for now, let's bring it back to our business agenda. As I mentioned already, another 1.1 million Americans filing new claims for jobless benefits last week continued jobless claims. Those continuing to get their hands on benefits remains very high too at nearly 15 million people. John Harwood is live in Washington. John, a stark reminder of the millions of people in America that need further support. And of course, we're in a stimulus stalemate as far as those negotiations in Washington are concerned to get more support to them. Julie, just uh, a reminder of how bad the economic Mm. situation we're in is that for more than 20 weeks, we have had uh, weekly job, initial jobless claims higher than in any week in the Great Recession. So uh, the fact that this is now trended up is a reflection of the resurgence of the virus this summer. Just as there's a lag between uh, coronavirus cases and deaths, there's a lag between coronavirus cases and the reaction of the public, uh, which has an impact on the economy. Our economy has actually been going kind of sideways since June. And that is a warning that if the uh, Congress and the administration do not get together and pass additional fiscal relief, we're going to see deeper economic problems this fall. uh, And this is just an indication of that. Roll off the support for small businesses, of course, too, which also need ongoing support in order to retain those workers. John, we could talk about this for hours, but I do want to get your take on what we saw from day three last night from the Democratic National Convention. We heard from President Obama. We also heard from the Democrats' choice for Vice President to Kamal Harris. Let me give you a flavor. Donald Trump's failure of leadership has cost lives and livelihoods. We are a nation that is grieving, grieving the loss of life, the loss of jobs. For close to four years now, he has shown no interest in putting in the work, no interest in finding common ground, no interest in using the awesome power of his office to help anyone but himself and his friends. No interest in treating the presidency as anything but one more reality show that he can use to get the attention he craves. 
Donald Trump hasn't grown into the job because he can't. John, I think we have to underscore to our international viewers just how unprecedented it is to see a, a full frontal assault, a takedown by a former president of a, a sitting president on stage at the, the DNC last night. And can we compare and contrast with the tone we get from Joe Biden tonight, too? Well, it was an unprecedented attack by a former president on his successor. But remember, everything about uh, President Trump, his behavior, uh, the way he's conducted himself in the office is also unprecedented. So uh, those two things weren't necessarily out of alignment. Very striking uh, sequence of attacks there. You had uh, President Obama portraying President Trump, not uh, going after his policy preferences, but portraying him as an actual threat to democracy and imploring Americans to use the next 76 days to get out uh, and vote and express their values. Uh, uh, Kamala Harris was a somewhat more traditional uh, political speech. It was her uh, most fulsome introduction onto the national stage. So you had her uh, making the case uh, on coronavirus, uh, lives and livelihoods. Uh, that was, that's the core of the uh, challenge facing the country right now. 170,000 people have lost their lives and the economy, as we've been discussing, is a wreck. I think Joe Biden tonight is going to try to make the case for how he can remedy these problems, how he can bring the country together, uh, sort of an echo of what Jill Biden did uh, a couple of days ago when she talked about how uh, she and Joe Biden, when they got married, had repaired a family that had lost a mother and an infant and said, how do you make a family whole the same way you make a nation whole? And I think Joe Biden's going to try to make that case tonight, demonstrate his um, uh, personal values. He's, he's well known for uh, empathy and a sense of decency, uh, and he's going to try to link that to what he can do, what he can bring to the country to get us out of the mess that we're in right now. Yes, we've laid out the problems. Now here are some solutions. John Howard, thank you so much for that, as always. Now, a fresh sign that the Chinese consumers are bouncing back, and oh boy, are they spending online. At least at Alibaba, quarterly results they're topping expectations. The company posted a net profit of $6.8 billion, revenue coming in at more than $22 billion, up some 35% nearly on a year ago. Selena Wang is live in Hong Kong with all the details for us. Selena, talk us through it, because it wasn't just this where we saw bumper gains. Absolutely. I mean, Alibaba is often seen by investors as a barometer for broader consumer sentiment in China. And what we're seeing from this strong earnings is that it is a reflection that China was one of the first economies to rebound from the pandemic with those tight virus lockdowns leading to largely that pandemic being controlled. And on the earnings call, you even heard management saying that they're coming out of the pandemic even stronger than before. During those lockdowns, people had no choice but to spend online. Businesses, Many more of them had to turn to selling online as well. And Alibaba says those trends are sticking. That's why you saw the core commerce business jumping by more than a third. You also saw their cloud computing business jump by almost 60%, bolstered by more people working from home. But the big question for Alibaba moving forward, even more than these geopolitical tensions, is can they maintain the strong market position they have in its vast array of businesses? If you look at the e-commerce division, they're facing more competition than ever before from 
from the likes of Pinduoduo and Upstart, as well as JD.com. In its food delivery business, they have stiff competition from May Tuan. And in live streaming, ByteDance and Tencent are stepping up their games, their efforts to have more social media influencers sell more products through live streaming. But again, Julia, all of these companies in the online retail sector, they are benefiting from this post-COVID rebound where people are continuing to shift their spending behavior online. You raised so many great points there, but you did also flirt with the elephant in the room, which is the geopolitics here. And I do want to talk about this because it's not just about Alibaba's business in China. Of course, they operate a marketplace for for businesses here in the United States to access uh, Chinese and Asian consumers as well. So there's a number of elements here when you're talking about the potential threat from this administration to their operations. What did Alibaba have to say about that? Julie, yes, a very large potential elephant in the room. Alibaba's management did say they were watching the situation very closely, that it's fluid, and they would, of course, comply with any potential changes in U.S. government policies towards Chinese companies. And we are expecting the rhetoric, at least, from the Trump administration to only get worse as we edge up into these November elections. But really, any potential ban on Alibaba would likely have a minimal impact on its revenue. The vast majority of its sales comes from its domestic China business. But the big question on a potential ban, which is the same question that investors are asking for the ban on Tencent's WeChat, is how broad the scope of any potential ban could be. You have companies like Apple and Nike. They get a significant amount of their sales to the Chinese consumer from Alibaba's Tmall platform. Analysts have also noted that Alibaba's cloud computing business relies on chips and software from U.S. companies. So that could have a big impact on Alibaba. I do also want to point out, Julia, that... Trump has had an interesting relationship with billionaire Alibaba founder Jack Ma. Trump has even called him a friend of his. And if you remember, in 2017, Jack Ma made a very high-profile meeting with Trump, after which he said he was going to create one million jobs in America. Although Jack Ma later walked back that promise after what he said was rising U.S.-China tensions. Thus far, we have seen Alibaba stay out of the crosshairs of this assault we're seeing from D.C. towards Chinese companies. But we did get that comment from Trump over the weekend hinting that we could see potential bans on companies, including Alibaba. Yes, those friendships are strongest when they're useful. Actually, there were some comments from uh, the current CEO actually that stood out to me. He couldn't have been more pointed. Alibaba's primary commercial focus in the United States is to support American brands, retailers, SMEs and farmers to sell to consumers and trade partners in China and key markets around the world. Our mission to make it easier to do business anywhere is fully aligned with the interests of both China and the United States. We shall see. Selena Wang, thank you so much for that. All right, there are some other stories I want to bring to you now that are making headlines around the world. The brother of the Manchester suicide bomber who set off an explosion that killed 22 people more than three years ago has been sentenced to more than 50 years in prison. 23-year-old Hashem Mabedi is sentenced a short time ago for his involvement in the attack, but he refused to attend the hearing. Mabedi was found guilty of murder, attempted murder and conspiring to cause explosions. Hot weather, dry conditions and lightning strikes have all contributed to dozens of major wildfires raging across California. More than 130,000 hectares have been burned. 
The governor is now ordering thousands of people to leave their homes for their own safety. He says resources to fight the flames are stretched thin and thousands of buildings remain under threat. Belarus broadening its crackdown on dissident, opening a criminal investigation into opposition councils that rejected Alexander Lukashenko's re-election. The president has ordered police to clear the streets, but protesters are defying the ban. They're encouraged by supporters from the EU, which have declared the election invalid. A blistering heat wave is gripping Japan, with temperatures reaching dangerous levels across the nation. In the past few weeks, more than 130 people have died in Tokyo. That's the highest monthly number in a decade. Authorities have issued a heat stroke warning and they're even encouraging people to remove their masks in certain situations. All right, still to come here on First Move, we're expecting an announcement from Russia on its COVID-19 vaccine. At half past the hour, its fast-track approval left experts hungry for details on how it works and just how it was tested. Stay with us. That's to come. Welcome back to First Move live from New York. U.S. futures are lower amid some discouraging news for the U.S. economy this morning. Fresh numbers showing over one million Americans filing for first-time jobless benefits last week. In total now, more than 28 million Americans still getting some form of jobless assistance and still no further help from Washington, D.C. in sight. In the meantime, a new reading on the Philadelphia area, factivity, factory activity excuse me, has fallen for a second straight month. Meanwhile, U.S.-China relations continue to play into sentiment too. The U.S. has officially suspended its extradition treaty with Hong Kong, the latest move by Washington to punish China for the sweeping new Hong Kong security law. On a positive note, however, China announcing a short time ago that trade talks with the US are set to resume after last weekend's delay. It's like a game of ping pong. Joining us now, Mohamed Alerian, the chief economic advisor at Alliance. Uh, Mohamed, great to have you on the show. Hopefully you can make sense of all of this for me. The recovery in the data, I think, took people by surprise. But now it's slowing and we don't have an agreement from DC on more stimulus. How concerned are you? I'm very concerned, Julian. Thank you for having me on. I'm very concerned because it's way too early for economic activity to level off and start coming down again. And that's what the data are telling us. This recovery is not a V-shaped recovery. It looks more like a lopsided square root. You come down very sharply, you come back up a little bit, and then you level off. That's not what this country needs, and that's not what the global economy needs. It's clearly a concern for the Federal Reserve, too. We saw that in the minutes yesterday. They've proved incredibly potent, we'll call it that, at stabilizing financial markets. And the stock market, I think, reflects that. But getting the money, getting the support to the real economy here is a far greater challenge. Absolutely. Like you say, the Federal Reserve has done a great deal to stabilize market. And that may have been a necessary condition, but it's certainly not sufficient for the rest of the economy. And even the one facility that is aimed at Main Street, as opposed to Wall Street, and that's the Main Street lending facility, is having enormous difficulty. So we have a problem both within the monetary policy targeting and, of course, beyond that, in terms of fiscal policy and other relief and productivity enhancing measures. So we've got a shortage and an 
a sort of early pullback on the financial aid measures. We've got the ongoing health crisis. Something I've also seen you talk about in the last few days, and I think it's so important, is the impact that has on our behaviour and what that means for the economy too. Yes, we have three emergencies, um, two that we talk a lot about, the third one that we don't enough. The first one is the health emergency. And we, we're understanding better what it is and how to deal with it, and it will take time. The second one is the economic emergency. And how do we live with reopening and COVID-19 at the same time? But there's a third one that's really critical, which is behavior modification. And what is shocking to a lot of people, particularly in the United States, is that people haven't changed their behaviors enough. They don't understand that their own assessment of risk has an impact on the risk facing the community. And you saw that with the closing of the universities, individuals acting in a way that ends up undermining the collective um, well-being. So what we really need is a better alignment of risk And that's going to take, unfortunately, longer than we have in terms of keeping the economy going. And until we see that and we see rising cases and an ongoing pandemic and the situation feeling out of control, you effectively have to buy the recovery if you're a lawmaker in this country. Correct. And and every time you buy the economy, you risk a couple of things. One is doing it in an inefficient manner. Hmm. You either do too little or too much. It's really hard to strike the right balance. And B, we're mortgaging our future. We're trying desperately to borrow from our future for just relief when we should be beyond relief at this stage. We should be looking forward, making sure that we can live with COVID better and starting to address the medium-term scars this, this economy. What drives me crazy, Julie, and it's not just me, is this is not about engineering. This is about political leadership and will. Yeah, I couldn't agree more with you. Uh, Dangerous to go further into that territory without showing degrees of rage, quite frankly. Um, What does this mean for investors, Mohammed? Because people are asking questions about whether what we're seeing in the stock market is sustainable. We've got political risk coming up. We've got all the risks that you just mentioned, too. What should investors be doing? let alone the geopolitical risk that you just mentioned. Yes. The tensions between the U.S. and China have gone way beyond economics. So it's much harder to, to put the genie back into the bottle. Look, the, for the marketplace, only one thing has mattered, which is liquidity conditioning, the belief that no matter what happens elsewhere, there will be ample and reliable liquidity. And that is what us market um, observers call the technicals, the, the willingness of people to take enormous risk, even though the fundamentals don't justify that risk. So we have this very, very deep conditioning in liquidity, and it's like a wave. You can ride it for quite a long time. It feels wonderful if you're surfing it, but at some point it breaks. And predicting that point is hard, but it's going to take a major shock to break that conditioning that whatever we do, Wall Street will be disconnected from Main Street because the central banks are simply injecting liquidity on a reliable basis. What is that shock, Mohammed? just so people watching are, are aware they know what to look for? So the one thing central banks cannot protect investors from is bankruptcy, capital impairment, because that destroys your capital. 
So the one big risk I, w- I would look at is at what point do things on Main Street become so bad that there's a spike in bankruptcy? So far, we've had some increase in bankruptcy, but no spike. I think that is what breaks um, the back of this liquidity rally. So keep an eye on bankruptcies, because remember, the Fed's liquidity can correct a lot of mistakes, but it cannot correct a capital impairment mistake. Yes, it can keep lots of zombie companies going. But when you start to see the dominoes fall, then there's a problem. Mohamed Alerian, fantastic to get your wisdom as always. Chief Economic Advisor for Allianz. Great to have you with us, sir. All right. Coming up, breaking news as Russia announces new details on its coronavirus vaccine. That's next. Stay with us. This is CNN Breaking News. Breaking news on Russia's COVID-19 vaccine. Moscow has announced plans to put the drug through a large-scale trial, which means meeting international phase three clinical standards. The trial will involve 40,000 people across five different countries. Russia also elaborated on the vaccine's safety, arguing that Sputnik V uses a human adenovirus delivery system that has been internationally approved for other vaccines. Matthew Chance is in Moscow with further details. Two critical elements here, Matthew. The fact that we now are seemingly going to see a phase three trial, as we understand it, but two, the specific type of a vaccine that they're using here, the platform. Yeah, I mean, look, I mean, we were always uh, promised by the Russians uh, that phase three trials uh, would be held. And and that's indeed what they've now announced, that that they would consist of 40,000 people, be held to international standards, uh, mainly in Russia, but also in other countries like Saudi Arabia, United Arab Emirates, um, the Philippines, possibly India, possibly Brazil. They haven't been that specific on that, but possibly one or or both of those uh, two uh, countries. Um, And and so that was something that was expected. What, What was unusual about this vaccine is that it was approved before those phase three trials were actually completed. And what the Russians say is that this isn't a phase three trial, it's a post-registration trial because they've already registered it. They've already approved it effectively. They're already apparently starting the process of giving frontline healthcare workers, teachers, you know, other vulnerable groups, this vaccine before it's undergone the conventional number and extent of, of human trials. And so that's raised all sorts of concerns about whether the vaccine is is effective, first of all, and of course, whether it is safe. A question normally answered by phase three trials and of course won't be fully answered in the Russian context until those trials uh, are over. In terms of the the platform, the adenovirus platform the Russians have used, they've been spelling this out from the outset. This is a technology they've developed. They say they've developed other vaccines in the past, the vaccine against Ebola, which has been certified by the, the World Health Organization. They also said they had in the works a vaccine against MERS, uh, the Middle East respiratory uh, Middle East and respiratory uh, syndrome, which hasn't fi- hasn't finished, but it's on that technology the Russians say that they've based this um, Sputnik V vaccine, this Sputnik vaccine, this vaccine against a coronavirus, and that's why they say they could do it so quickly, and that's why they say they're so confident that it's going to be safe because it's technology they've already used in the past. What we haven't seen uh, yet are any published data to be peer reviewed. Now, Hmm. the Russians 
have said today that they intend to publish that data later this month. There's only 10 days left in this month. And so I think scientists around the world are going to be anxious to see what they actually put out there. Julia. Yeah. Where is the data? Because in order to be able to validate any of these findings and even justifying going to phase three, we need to see some evidence. Matthew Chance, thank you so much for that. Let's get some context here. Joining us now is Dr. Peter Hotez. He's a professor and dean of tropical medicine at the Baylor College of Medicine. Dr. Hotez, fantastic to have you on the show this morning. I know you were just listening to Matthew speaking there. Yes, it seems good that we're going to see a phase three as we would understand it here in the United States or elsewhere in the world. But to, to that point that we were making about the data, don't we also need to understand phase one and phase two and the justification for even getting this far? That's right, uh, Julia. They're putting the cart before the horse. They say they've already approved it now, probably because they're succumbing to international pressure. Now they say they're going to do a phase three trial of sorts. Um, Look, the situation is this. Making a COVID-19 vaccine, it turns out, is not that technically complicated. This is an old school problem in virology. We need to make an immune response against the spike protein. There are many ways to do that. Our vaccine is through a recombinant protein vaccine that we're accelerating production in India. There are inactivated virus vaccines, adenovirus vaccines like the AstraZeneca Oxford and J&J and now the the Russian vaccines. That's not the hard part. The hard part is all the quality control, the quality assurance and the uh, testing to show that it's safe and effective. So what the Russians are doing is really advertising their weakness. They're advertising that their science infrastructure is not strong. What do I mean by that? What I mean is it's not a technically complicated hurdle. The fact that they're calling it Sputnik 5 is ridiculous. It's nothing nearly as complicated as that. And they show their lack of situational awareness about the importance of quality control, quality assurance. This, to me, makes Russian science uh, as I say, look weak, look like they're uh, look like they're disorganized and not really certain of what what they're really doing at this point. Wow, I mean that's some uh, bold criticism there. There's an assumption of trust, it seems, coming from the Russians, but their pushback, I think, and, and Matthew touched upon it as well, was that look, this is a platform that's been used on humans in the past. Yet, if you look at what some of the uh, vaccine candidates in the United States, the technology that they're using, the mRNA, the messenger RNA. Um, which effectively fools the body into thinking you have the virus, this technology, this platform has never been used on humans. Do they have a point here about what they're using versus what other candidates are based upon? Well, yes, you're right. There There is an mRNA technology platform being looked at in the United States, but also several countries are looking at adenovirus based vaccines like the Russians are doing. So the Russians are proposing to develop an adenovirus vaccine. The Chinese have done the same, but the Chinese at least have published all of their phase one uh, studies and they're uh, publishing their non-human primate data. Same with the uh, AstraZeneca Oxford vaccine. That's an adenovirus vaccine. They're now publishing their studies. J&J is a, has an adenovirus vaccine. So as I say, there, there are lots of different ways to make COVID-19 vaccines. The key is doing this in a stepwise manner where the scientific community can review uh, the literature, review the progress, because there are safety issues around these adenovirus vaccines. They are not that straightforward, as we're already seeing in some of the phase one trials. They're actually not 
as immunogenic sometimes as we like in terms of stimulating an immune response. So we saw in the AstraZeneca Oxford vaccine that a single dose is not very impressive in inducing an immune response. You need at least two doses. Uh, and probably well, that'll be true of the J&J vaccine. So these are the things that need to be worked out. So by the Russians, by jumping all over all of those things, are tone deaf to the fact of what the hard part of making a vaccine is. And that's why I uh, made that very strong uh, statement of condemnation that this is an advertisement for Russian weakness in science, not strength. Yeah, and I won't forget it. How do they remove that advert for their weakness? What do you need to hear them promise today and then deliver on in order to convince you that this is a vaccine that's safe to use on humans and for mass use? Well, you know, we do have lots of belts and suspenders to safeguard against actions like this. And this is the World Health Organization has spent decades creating a system of pre-qualification before you start uh, releasing and exporting vaccines. And again, the Russians have jumped, start, have, have, uh, have, uh, jumped over that as well. Uh, and, you know, it, it, it smells like an old-fashioned Cold War tactic of gaining influence over uh, African countries and, and certain Latin American countries such as Venezuela, maybe Nicaragua, Cuba, in order to exert influence. So, in, in my opinion, they've gone out of the way to botch this in every way they can to lose credibility. So, to your point there, and I think it's a very important one, we want to hear confirmation from the UAE, the Saudis, uh, Brazil or India that have been mentioned by the Russians today, that they are willing to have these trials done and what the conditions are, quite frankly, on the sale of this vaccine if the decision is that they decide to use it. Well, not exactly. What I want, Julie, what I want is I want to hear this from the World Health Organization. Right. I want to hear WHO that the, the Russians are adhering to the same international standards that everybody else is adhering to, including us, including uh, the, the other uh, pharmaceutical companies, including the Chinese. Uh, I want, it's really important that the Russians fall in line. And it's not meant as a disciplinary action. You know, you know the consequences are dire if, if the Russians mess it up and get it wrong, because we have a huge problem with vaccine hesitancy and vaccine confidence globally. It's a global anti-vaccine movement waiting for just such an opportunity to discredit vaccines. This has already resulted in large-scale vaccine refusal in the Philippines. That caused the deadly measles epidemic, uh, killed uh, many children in the Philippines. Uh, this is true. This was true in Samoa. Uh, this has been true in the United States, where the anti-vaccine movement is very aggressive and landed 18 kids in the ICU uh, with with measles because of uh, the undermining of confidence. And this is why you know the scientific community is drawing a line in the sand on this because the consequences of getting it wrong. Uh, and undermining vaccine confidence. Vaccines are the most life-saving technologies we have. They are our best line of defense against uh, childhood infections and infectious diseases in general. And if we screw around with this and, and uh, undermine that confidence, then this has devastating consequences for global health. Yeah, I read a review uh, this morning that said there's some form of anti-vaccination sentiment in 90% of countries around the world. Giving uh, that sentiment ammunition is the last thing we need during a global movement. Yeah, they're pandemic. a global movement now, unfortunately. Yeah, I know. Dr. Peter Hotez, fantastic to have you on the show. Thank you, Professor and Dean of Tropical Medicine at the Baylor College of Medicine. So thank you. Thanks. All right, a quick look at the action on Wall Street this morning because we have opened lower across Wall Street. As you can see, the S&P falling further from record highs. The Nasdaq, though, unchanged. Energy stocks, in fact, the big losers so far. 
All this amid new concerns about the health of the US economy and the outlook. The number of people filing first-time jobless claims rising by a further 1.1 million last week. We were expecting a reading below. We were hoping for it. We didn't get it. All right, coming up next, we'll be speaking to the CEO of the Russian fund that's financed the vaccine development. We'll get the details from Russia right next. Don't move a muscle. Stay with All right, let's return to one of our top stories today. Russia has announced the latest update on its COVID-19 vaccine. The country taking a different approach to others around the world, also developing their own. Russia says 40,000 people will now take part in what it calls a post-registration clinical trial, the equivalent to phase three trials that others, for example, Moderna in the United States or Oxford University in the UK have begun Unlike those vaccines, Russia has already registered its vaccine and is using it. It says further tests will take place mostly in Russia, but also in the UAE, Saudi Arabia, the Philippines and either India or Brazil. I'm pleased to say Kirill Dmitriev, the CEO of the Russian Direct Investment Fund, which has funded the vaccine, is joining us now from Moscow. Kirill, fantastic to have you on the show. A hugely important moment for Russia. I know you were listening to my previous conversation. Dr. Hotev there called you an advertisement for your weakness. What's your response here? What's the message today? Well, Julie, we just finished a call with uh, 300 journalists from 50 countries and the most impressions that people from different countries have is an impression of hope and positivity. And we hear some very negative comments from the U.S., from some of the people in Britain. And frankly, we can only explain it by shock. You know, when there is shock, there are four stages of it. It's denial, anger, depression and acceptance. And I think there's this anger phase because nobody could believe that Russia would really be advanced on its vaccine research. But we are. There is some valid criticism about publishing data and it will be published this month. There is also post Uh, registration trials that we will do based on placebo, based on randomization, in full accordance with Western standards. But there is a main point that our platform of vaccine, human adenovirus, is really proven, and I can maybe go into some detail if that's of interest. We shall. But let's talk about the the point that you made about the valid criticism and, and the publishing of data. Precisely what data are you going to publish? Because there's still uncertainty about what justified your decision to to take this on to phase three and even be already using this on humans? Will you publish the equivalent of phase one and phase two data? Yes, so both phase one, phase two data will be published. There was extensive research on animals before. And I think a very important point is that adenovirus human vaccines have been used for a very long time. Even US military uses it for all of the conscripts starting from 1971. So 10 million US military, more than that, have received adenovirus human vaccines in the past. So what Russian scientists did, they chose a very well-documented, very well-proven platform. There have been 250 clinical studies of human adenovirus. There were, you know, 30,000 patients receiving adenovirus human vector drug in China, more than 20,000 clinical trials of people in the last 10 years on human adenovirus, and they made a bet uh, on this approach. And it's very different from what mRNA and uh, monkey adenovirus is, because we know there are no long-term negative effects of human adenovirus, which we are using, but nobody has studied long-term effects of mRNA, monkey uh, adenovirus. There are just no studies long-term of those long-term effects. And that's a valid point. How many humans have you trialed your vaccine on, this vaccine, for 
COVID-19 on so far? Can you give me a number? Well, uh, the platform in Russia has been tried on more than 3,000 people. The same delivery Not mechanism. Not the platform, Kirill. Important. This specific vaccine. I understand your point about the, the platform and, and you've made it, but this specific COVID-19 vaccine, how many people are we this talking about? This uh, vaccine has been tried on more than 100 people. Right. And the approach has been that because of the pandemic, Russia has a law that if you have a very well-documented, proven platform, you can start post-registration trials while you vaccinate your more at-risk people. And we believe this is actually a very good approach. And many other countries are asking us about this law, about the thoughts behind it. Because basically we want to vaccinate volunteer medical workers, other people who want to get the vaccine, while we do post-registration trials on a vaccine platform that has been proven before. We know it doesn't cause cancer. We know it doesn't cause infertility, which are still open questions for mRNA and monkey adenovirus vaccines. And Julie, on those vaccines, phase three, doesn't answer those long-term questions because those are new technologies, haven't been studied, haven't been researched for long-term effects. I understand. But I think, and you made the point about the shock from the international community, you are simply jumping steps that other nations like the United States, like the UK, simply wouldn't do. And we can debate whether it's right or wrong during a global uh, pandemic, but it's simply not done by other nations. Uh, Kirill, Talk to me about the agreements that you have with the likes of Saudi Arabia, with the UAE. Are they formal agreements to begin these trials? And, and if so, when will they begin? Yes, yeah, so we expect uh, clinical trials to start in some countries in August, in some in September. We have formal agreements with several Middle Eastern nations. And once again, we are not jumping any steps. We follow Russian law. And Russian law allows us to basically, at the time of pandemics, use a proven platform. So once again, we have major interest from India, from Latin America, from uh, countries in Asia, who are not trying to put a label on it, but asking a very basic question. How does the technology work? And once they get the answer, for example, that we use adenovirus vectors number 5 and 26, and Johnson & Johnson uses just 26, and Cancino uses just 5, and we have both, they understand we have a very solid technology that is also validated by other players. Cancino is already approved for use in Chinese military. So once you understand how it works, actually it becomes very clear that using pr proven platform makes lots of sense. This is why we have great progress with Middle East, with Latin America, with Asia. There's clearly huge fears out there that getting this wrong fuels the concern about taking vaccines in the first place. Kirill, it's a personal question, but I'm going to ask you, would you be willing at this stage to take the vaccine that, that the Russians sure. have produced? Uh, uh, Julie, I already took the vaccine. My wife took the vaccine. My two 74-year-old parents took the vaccine, who are molecular biologists and immunologists. We took the vaccine because we know it works. And, uh, you know, uh, we know the science behind it. So, yes, I did take it. My antibody level is several times of a COVID patient who's been very sick. Uh, no really significant side effects. I've been vaccinated for the last two months. I feel great. I walk around. I feel liberated from all those constraints that were imposed on us before. Carol, fantastic to have you on the show. Thank you so much for sharing uh that personal information, as well as what the, uh, the country's doing. And we look forward to that data, sir. I think everybody does. Kirill Dmitriev, the CEO of the Russian Direct Investment Fund. Thank you. All right, breaking news now to former White House chief strategist Steve Bannon arrested. U.S. federal prosecutors charged Bannon and three others with defrauding donors of hundreds of thousands of dollars in a border wall fundraising campaign. 
Bannon will now appear in a New York court later today. You're watching First Move. More to come. Welcome back to First Move with a final look at what we're seeing for the price action this morning. And we are lower. Tech stocks have been on the rebound, though, in the past few moments, two tenths of a percent higher. So we uh, won't hold our breaths on that one. But it has seen uh, an impact, of course, as a result of the disappointing jobless claims weighing on sentiment. A further one point million people claiming for benefits. Right, to look today at today's boardroom brief as well. Airbnb moving ahead with its long-anticipated IPO. It's just filed confidential documents with the SEC. The home-sharing service is aiming to go public despite the challenges that the coronavirus pandemic poses to the sharing economy model. Facebook, meanwhile, says it's cracking down on accounts that promote the QAnon conspiracy theory. It says it's removed nearly 800 groups from its sites and has put restrictions on 2,000 groups on Facebook and more than 10,000 accounts on Instagram. Facebook says it's part of a broader expansion of its policy against violence. Australian carrier Qantas Airways says it's unlikely it will resume international flights before July 2021. The airline reported a nearly $2 billion loss for the financial year that ended in June as it suffered heavy losses due to the coronavirus pandemic. All right, that's it for the show. We'll continue to cover the breaking news on the vaccine and, of course, Alexis Navalny out of Russia throughout programming today. But for that, for now, that's it from First Move. I'm Julia Chatterley. We'll see you tomorrow. Stay safe. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, host of the Chasing Life podcast. In honor of our 10th season, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message at 470-396-0832 and tell us how you chase life. It could be used on an upcoming episode.